Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. Hey, hello. I just said hi to you three times. That's right. Yeah, well, we've got to make it perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People don't know, we actually, uh, we go through many, many takes of just the introduction. <laughs> yeah, and then it all goes to shit from there. But the, the hi yeah. is always perfect. <laughs> um, got to get that perfect. Hi, Raphael. I, I, every episode, uh, we address some topic, and afterwards... I was like, oh, I wish I would have said that. I wish I would have said that. Mm-hmm. Like, for as an example, the email episode, I never talked about the miracle of email. Like how amazing it is that you don't have to go to the post office. You don't have to disturb someone in the middle of their breakfast. You just send an mm-hmm. email. They answer whenever they want. Yeah. It's the same price anywhere in the world. It's open source. It works on any device. So thank you, whoever invited... I don't want to sound too negative because there's a lot of things that are miraculous and email yeah. is one of them. So. Why don't you th- uh, thank fax machines while you're at it, though? No, I never liked fax machines. No. <laughs> I was at a show this week and there was like um, uh, like electronic artists from the 1980s and 70s and 80s and she was showing like these, I've never shown these before and they're my original fax uh, arts like thing, you know, and we were trading these these faxes between New York and Toronto, and 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 we would whistle into the phone to distort the faxes. Who it was, was like, this artist? Uh, you know what? Now I I can't remember the artist's name, and I'm gonna have to look it up and put it in the show notes. But what I thought was I didn't know you could actually like alter a fax machine by whistling into the phone. <laughs> so I mean, it, it, this is I've never been surprised by these glitch methods because it, they're electronic signals, and you can just change. A cable into another device, and you—what's the what's the big deal? It's not so hard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I mean, what? Like, I mean, you're talking about the magic of email, the magic of facts. No, no, is... I'm talking about the glitch that if mm. people are like, "Whoa, you changed audio into visual." Whoa, yeah, it's not yeah. that hard. It's all electrons. You just change the pipe. But I didn't know you could get in the way of a fax. Uh, and, and you're right. Like, but the, the the for a little while though, faxing was like almost like there was like some. Well, that's like artists. that. that uh, Steve Jobs and Wozniak had that uh, <clears throat> whistle thing to make free calls. They sort yeah. of made a hack. So it, the phone signal is all based on uh, audio signals. So if what you a, mimic them. What a beautiful time, though, when the body and electronic media were intertwined. That, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think Nam June Pike also did, you know, thought of things that way, too. You know, you could insert your body. Um, I'm always trying to do this in my art. That's why I've always done augmented <laughs> reality, right? Yeah, yeah. But sometimes it's a bit, if you're so into tech and then other artists do um, things that are. I remember talking about some digital art project that if you know tech, it just was very obvious and you've seen it before in demos, but for the older art audience, it's miraculous. Yeah. And then the, my friend was like, well, the intended audience is not you, it's 50-year-olds because they have the money. <laughs> but the thing that's miraculous that I'm talking about is like looking back, like as someone who knows, when, it's almost like some kind of time travel in the reverse, like not someone from the future, but someone from the past was doing these amazing things, um, and that we never heard about that. You know, I, I I always like I get really excited at this point in my life. I'm like a yeah. I think I'm, it's like a midlife thing. You know, there's like normal older men watch World War II documentaries by Ken Burns or whatever, and they get really excited about that. I get excited about like what was happening at Bell Labs in 1969. Wow, I don't think it's yeah, incredible. but, but the, it, it was an incredible time, and I I, I do like whenever technology uh, is is. Everything's unknown. So people are like, and I saw a lecture by a type designer and they had to design fonts for the screen and he they just never had 
seen any pixel fonts. Like the idea of reducing fonts to a few squares. Mm-hmm. And the only example he had was in farms sometimes for flat. Uh, I don't know why, but farms would have the name of their farm in the tiles of their roof. And then he built the first pixel fonts based on <laughs> photos of farm roofs. So That's that, incredible. That, that kind of, yeah, that kind of when you're really in the dark like there's really and you're shining the first light on any possibilities that's really interesting yeah i mean in technology they call that kind of green fields um or like you know this sort of open horizon type work and and i don't do you think it still exists is it have we no. discovered <laughs> well speaking of open horizons i just came back from iceland uh-huh yeah um, how was it it was great we went there for a week and and to preface it i'd been there Five years ago, I went for a lecture and then I went around with some friends there that I made that week and they took me like, oh, we'll take you to the secret river that nobody knows. Mm. And in five years, a lot happened. I spoke to the people like, oh, those secret rivers are not so secret anymore. Uh, There's actually a structure in front of it with time tickets. So to paint the picture, five years ago, I was in a car with a local friend there who's living there. We drive, then we have to hike an hour through the snow, and it's a snowy sort of moon landscape. I'm wearing three jackets on top of each other, it's so cold. And all of a sudden, there's two rivers that meet each other. One river is volcanic, and it's very hot, and it's too hot to sit in. And one river is cold, and exactly where they meet, there's a bunch of hippies sitting in the water naked. Uh, So I get there, I take off the three jackets and the mountain boots and all your clothing, and you just bathe in nature with a bunch of hippies and no one else around. And this year we had to, that wasn't an option anymore because now uh, someone made a book uh, or a website with all the secret spots in Iceland. So they're all packed now. (laughs) (laughs) So so what we did is, uh, my friend Paul Salelis recommended this other place that's hard to get to. So you have to, if you really want to be by yourself hiking and in nature, you have to find places that are hard to get to. So we found this place that we had to take a special all-terrain bus that can drive through a river because Mm -hmm. you had to traverse several small rivers and then we got there and it wasn't completely abandoned but not too many people and then it was beautiful and very special but um, we were there and there was a base camp and you could buy food and uh, we we stayed there etc and I thought oh what what so great that this is cashless you can just pay with your card and technology is great because it makes it they don't have to have change they don't have they can't be robbed uh, the right. money is all electronic. How how great is technology? That was my first thought, being there. I don't have to change money. But then I started thinking, is it that great or does it make things too accessible and then it just gets flooded? And and that made mm. me think about art, that artists are always trying to get... Uh, everyone, if you ask them, they're like, yes, of course we should have a wider audience. But then I was like, really? Is is that... Yeah. I mean, we'll, have no, we'll have no community if we have a wider audience. That, I mean... That can happen for sure. Like you could, but it, it and it does seem to me like you know you're saying five years ago, but like ten years before that, or well, I, I, I spoke to that, someone. No yeah, I spoke to someone living there who was born there, and she spoke about her grandparents seeing the first tourists in Iceland. Right, and like these funny creatures with backpacks that they had never seen <laughs> in the '60s or the '50s, and uh, yeah, imagine, yeah, so. Well, there wouldn't it, have been a flight, so maybe you had to take a boat or something, you know? Yeah. So I almost feel like it's, it's uh, also being in New York, I started calculating. By the way, Iceland is insanely expensive. I, mm-hmm. I, it feels like Iceland hates tourists, and they're like, well, they're coming. We might as well just milk them for everything they have. So 
everything in Iceland is basically double airport prices outside of the airport. Well, apparently there was a whole economic strategy behind what they're doing because they they have uh, over a million tourists now a year. So they and they went from something like ten thousand a year. Yeah. Well, and, they're uh, right between the, the U.S. and Europe, so they're really yeah, they, strategically uh, placed. Apparently, the discount airlines that, that they have are all part of this plan, like to yeah. get you to stay over in, in Iceland. Anyway. But it makes life for the locals miserable, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Except for the ones who own the real estate. Well, it reminds me because my next, I'm going to be taking a vacation in a few weeks. And uh, Kristen and I, we Is, is that look, still morally defendable to go on vacation? Yeah, I don't know. Well, what's not morally defendable is let me just uh, say where we're going. We're going to a tiny island that's isolated and very difficult to get to where they, <laughs> like, the whole point of us going is to go to, like, escape. Um, and I think that you're, like, you're bringing up with Iceland, it's going to be a, a thing. Like, it, it's going to be like Canada in the Victorian era or something. Like, all the wealthy Americans are going to look for where are, where's no one going? And there's increasingly few places, right? There's a decreasing number of places where that's even possible. Yeah, uh, population you know, like, is growing around the world. Middle class in developing nations is growing. So tourism yeah. is growing, yeah. Yeah, and then like, you know, I mean, so we were thinking of this one tiny island called Ile de Madeleine where we're going, and then the other option we had was like the Arctic. We were like <laughs> But like <laughs> But it's almost it's like, to me to me uh, we went on our honeymoon to Hawaii and you don't expect to live like a local and be cool and so you're in the middle of tourists all the time, but everybody's friendly and the, the whole culture is inviting and everybody's mm-hmm. chill. Uh, and it just felt like in Iceland, they gave all the, the smaller jobs to people who really don't like the job. Mm-hmm. There's this difference, in, and they're just, everybody's just kind of, not exactly mean, but they use as few words as possible. Press, press green I, I, button, go. And like, yeah. <laughs> instead of, hey, so nice that you're here. So, <laughs> yeah, but the, the nature is really incredible, but I wouldn't recommend Iceland. I, I don't think I would. Mm. If someone okay. asked me where should we go on vacation. Okay. All right. Well, it's changed. And you've been a part of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And five years ago was maybe still, the, it was kind of okay, but was already quite touristy. But now it's like, wow. You should hear how touristy Detroit is now. I'm <laughs> just kidding. But like, there I wonder be. if actually there it might be. be yeah. There might be like a dense pocket of Airbnbs and coffee shops where everyone goes. And then they have <laughs> urban gardening workshops and uh, Right, yeah. right. But it, it really we came back and it really made me appreciate New York because New York is filled with tourists, but somehow it's such a big mess that it, it absorbs everything and it's fine. And Well, you know, like what I wanted to talk about today is sort of related to what you're talking about, which is that it's almost like this. I talked about I said it was going to be changed, but I think it's really jumping the shark, right? Like there is this point have at we? which <clears throat> do you know that expression jumping the shark? Yeah, yeah but have we as a, as a podcast? Um, oh, as a podcast, yes. How do we it's know? Interesting. Well, one of the ways I could look at the stats. <laughs> no, I don't think but, uh, that's exactly the wrong indicator. Like, no, I know, like, I know. Yeah. Well, no, you could, yeah. Like, I thought you might go there, and I thought it might be interesting to The less audience, the better we're doing. Well, you get to a certain point, and in anything, and you you get this feeling like, okay, I've I'm, is now the time to switch or change or... You know what's going who, who on. Who told here? you that? Uh, who said that I had to say? Yeah, that? Who, who 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 planted the seed in Jeremy, or was it just um, yourself? 
I'll just say it like at work there's like we've had um we've had quite a few people leave in the last uh uh like three months like more than we've ever seen in in 10 years and uh I'm not talking like hundreds of people because then we would have zero people working but that, for us, that could but, like, be the same as like Apple in 1998 people leaving like this company's dead Well, actually, I was looking at it. I gave this talk this week at work, too, where I actually referred to Apple in 1997 uh, and all, all this stuff, right? Like, and so <laughs> like every head, tech company that's not going well, they're like, remember <laughs> Apple. Well, and, and, and then I, yeah, I gave this hopefully rousing talk about like um, how companies get out of those ruts. Did you wear bad, Braveheart makeup? Um, yeah, I didn't know. I, I, but I always actually, I, I fall into persona whenever I present at work, which is very amusing. So now I make fun of it, but <laughs> because I like become famous new media artists. I, if I'm talking to a group of people, I cannot help it. But, um, anyway, the, it, it was useful, but like Apple in 1997 was like kind of in a, in a bad place. It wasn't just Steve Jobs coming back. They kind of reoriented their whole strategy, but they decided something had to change. Right. But it wasn't even that Apple had to change. It was that the whole computer industry had to change. Like it had been all about, you know, the price performance, uh, kind of, uh, memory and hard drive space and megahertz, uh, for, and, and then increasingly lowering, you know, prices. And if you look at the ads from that era, that's what they're all about. They're like nine ninety nine for eight gigabytes of RAM. And it's all specs actually, for it dollar. Been, it would be actually like 50 megabytes of RAM, but yeah, yeah. Specs for dollars. Right. Then Apple comes along and they're like, okay, we're going to do less products. We're only going to do two, actually. And we're not even going to put them in our ads. And we're going to reorient our whole company around this idea, which we're going to call challenging the status quo. And we're going to put, like, you know, Muhammad Ali in our, you know, one of our first ads. And we're just going to put our logo and think different. And we're not going to say anything else, right? And... Um, and overnight, I mean, really, there was a huge shift culturally that happened at that moment in 1997. Um, but also, it's, it's not just marketing. It was also a different product. Well, that's why I said they were. So, and this is the, the talk that I was giving was like, it's not just the marketing, actually. Like the whole company changed. The, the founder changed. The product line changed. The way they treated their customers changed. Everything changed. And it all changed around this idea of challenging the status quo. Um, and, uh, and it was all about this idea, and we talked about it in our last podcast, of putting purpose sort of above profit for a short period of time. Now, they became the most profitable company on the planet, but they didn't do that by <laughs> saying really we're going to I really think it's funny that people have this... Uh, uh, Apple really succeeded in pretending they don't care about money. No, no, we're actually... And, and then they, they end up being the most profitable. It's like, no, we're above well, money. We don't think that. Yeah, way. yeah. Well, that's what a lot of companies do. And I was able to cite, you know, three or four other examples. The most recent example of this is Everlane, which took H&M, which was the, you know, the biggest fast, fast fashion brand on the planet. H&M was like record profits. And then news got out about how, you know, H&M was making its clothes and And they're a bunch of workers, PR, right? PR disasters of uh, yeah. the, the, so then, the monkey in the jungle incident. And the, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And then a small company called Everlane comes along and is like, actually, we believe in that you should know where your clothes are made and that you, the pricing should be transparent and like everything should be ethically sourced, blah, blah, blah. And they became the fastest growing brand on the planet, right? And then, they're and, also and now, the, the blandest brand in, on the planet. I know, but I'm just saying, like, people are will choose. But there's a big difference between Apple doing uh, interesting ideas, like rethinking 
the mm-hmm. beige box and the old ugly monitor and putting it all in a very interesting uh, package and Everlane just making they're really making white sandwiches with mayonnaise like it's the most boring clothing you can find it's really but Ga- you know the gap did that for years and tried I know, to make it but fun I, I, but they're I, like we're not even to, try to make it fun we're going to make it but, ethical but if if you're saying purpose over profit they're making creatively from a fashion point of view it's it's like it's not even if they were making moleskin notebooks, like just the perfect notebook, I would respect that. But mm-hmm. the the clothing is it's the cuts are bad, the the fit is bad. So I, I I'm sure that their production line is more sound than other companies. But uh, I, I really think it's a sad state when we celebrate a company that puts out really mediocre mediocrity. That's the word I was looking for. Okay, it's just I'm, not, I, it's I'm just actually not medi- even talking about celebration. I'm just saying that like people. This is to get us back to change, which is that like there is a feeling or a, a point at which tides turn radically. Like they just flip, and everything that was was correct is or, or dogma, right? Like the things that you got to do it this way. Suddenly, like in an instant, they flip, almost like magnetic poles flipping, mm-hmm. and everything that was right is true is false, and everything that was false is true, at least as far as the public's concerned. And, and in this case, we're talking about sort of consumers but yeah um i do think you know the same is true in in other media you eventually you, you there's this but you're thinking that, that there's only up. one reality but there's many realities because it, it uh, everlane is one group of people and in another bubble yeah, there's yeah. a whole another reality well there, i've talked about i think jeffrey moore on this podcast before and he he's written you know quite a few books on um startups and and uh and growth and he has this book called inside the tornado and he talks about when the tornado hits, like there is this buildup that happens and then something flips in society. And and anyway, the book is really about how do you prepare for that moment? But the preparation for this moment, and everyone's trying to guess this moment all the time. And I also think in art, you know, we're often, you know, and this is not good. And I know you're going to argue right away, this is not a good thing. But a lot of artists are always trying to like anticipate What's that next moment? How can I get in? You know, on the how can I be the first in that like how river? How can I be the Iceland? first uh, follower? Yeah, yeah. Like, how can I get that Bitcoin you know project out before everyone else or whatever? Um, so that I you know that I become part of a new zeitgeist. Like, actually, we should, what is the the origin of the word zeitgeist? It's German, I assume, right? Mm-hmm. It must mm-hmm. be. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it's I, German I mean, for it, jumping the shark. It's really crazy. It, it, one of the most uh, fascinating art documentaries that I saw, and it was a bit cheesy, but it's a BBC documentary about the, the cave paintings. Mm-hmm. I think it was a four-part art history documentary, and they made it kind of Hollywood with special effects and building up the episode with attention and Hollywood music, and that part was kind of cheesy, but they showed a, a lot of different cave paintings, and that changes in cave paintings happened at the same time on different continents. So right. for 10,000 years, cave paintings were a certain way, and then something changed at the same time in Australia and North America and Europe, and nobody knows how. So that's, mm-hmm. that's really insane to me. That's really unbelievable. That's miraculous. And so this idea that change it percolates even uh, without a physical connection. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that, it, that is incredible. And, and you mentioned earlier that it's a feeling. It's not something you can predict. And I think a lot of people have lost a lot of money trying to predict when changes will happen. But the I, the, best the way to, to change that, the future is to invent it. 
Well, what I've seen, like, I think the best analogy is that, like, unfortunately, you can't, it's like a flock of birds. You know, you can't really predict it as a, an aggregate. You can only observe the individual, which is kind of also really interesting from a, you know, you know kind of solipsistic position, which is to say that if you listen to yourself, you know, sometimes you might actually yeah, hear the, the, the most individual the is the most universal. Yeah, yeah. I had a friend who worked at Pixar, and he was like, I was always arguing in design for empathy and, um, you know, for like uh, listening to the customer, et cetera. And he was like, you know, I'm going to come into your team and I'm going to argue for the opposite. And I'm going to say, like, I'm going to argue that you should listen to yourself. And because when we're at Pixar and we're trying to imagine, like, how do you write dialogue for a fish or how should a fish laugh? There is no reference material for that. There's no research we can get, go out and do on fish that laugh because they don't exist. And so all we can do is listen to our own heart about what we think is right. Yeah, like if you think of children's novels, um, it's probably... I, I always loved Roald Dahl growing up, and he was mm-hmm. just a, a, a twisted person. And uh, I like that that came out in the books. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, did you read um, his books growing up? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Uh, but I wasn't like a big, that wasn't my, I wasn't, I'm not as dedicated a fan as uh, <laughs> some people are, but it, it is amazing. Like, um, I, do you know his writing method? Or, I, I, no, no, just, talk about it. Well, there's just, uh, people are always fascinated with writers and their rituals because it's such a, a monk-like activity. But he just had this shed outside of his house in the yard and it had a sort of lazy boy chair, the, the kind that flips back at where your feet are up. And then he had a sort of improvised piece of wood with a typewriter on it. And there was uh, vines growing all around him. So he was just in this weird green chamber in a sort of pilot chair with a typewriter. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> that sounds like a, you know, like a very, like a self-punishment kind of. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But I think that's it. maybe what you're saying is like, listen to the customer. And I think he did the opposite. <clears throat> Yeah, well, I mean, there's there, you know, there are certain sort of self profits that figure <laughs> things out, or there are just people who have like a great moral compass, um, or there's just this feeling we all have sometimes as a collective, but we can't express it with words um, because most of our consciousness is actually not language based, right? It's actually like you know we're hearing sounds, we're observing things visually, we're sensing and you know I hate to say sensing energy, but honestly, like yeah, vibes, I, yeah, yeah, you're sensing vibes, and there's all this kind of intuition that's going on in the subconscious. There's nothing uh, that's to me that, that that's not corny, like that maybe it's been appropriated by uh, Burning Man culture, or whatever. But the reality is, most of our decisions. The way I feel, like even when people talk about money, they'll they'll justify things and like, oh, it's all numbers. I can pr- see what's the logical thing, and still people are like, no, I want to purchase a home that feels safe. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, there's been a lot of economic theory in the last twenty years that kind of revolutionized the like idea that people make rational decisions. Right, everything now is grounded on this idea that people actually make very irrational, emotional exactly, decisions. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And or like was, when they <sighs> vote for a president. I, I was watching something, I can't remember what it was recently, but like they were talking about how there's actually neurons in the gut and in um, the heart. <laughs> so, you know, someone, we, someone told me that there's a bacteria. A friend of mine is a scientist, but he also has a terrible sweet tooth. So he was mm-hmm. trying to quit sugar. He was actually, yeah. his stomach was hurting from eating too much candy. Uh, so he's like, I'm trying to quit sugar, but it's just, 
it's so overwhelming when I don't have sugar after a few days. And then he did some research and found that there are bacteria in the stomach that really love sugar. And when you don't give them sugar, they give off a hormone that makes you sad. Oh, no. So they're really taking you hostage. It's, it's, wow. it's not, yeah. It, it, so if you were, if, and it's one of those things where you're like, I'm in control. I can think of what's logically the best decision. But then, like, mm-hmm. oh, man, I want some chocolate. Yeah, so I mean, I've been this. I've just been thinking about this because, um, you know, in my own career, I decided to make a change about the type of work I would make, and you know, Wait, you and when I. When did have you discussed, decide that? Uh, it was two years ago. Was it gradual? It was. It was like I was talking about. It was gradual, building up inside of me. I was getting like angrier and angrier in a way, and then I was like, I can't do it this other way anymore. Um, and you and I were just just talking before the podcast, which we're not supposed to do about. Hannah Gadsby's Netflix special that I posted on Twitter. Well, mostly, is, yeah, to me, the, the point of that was your tweet and not her set, but yeah. Well, yeah, but in her set, she talks about how she's going to quit comedy, which, by the way, I think is a great hook for any comedy set. <laughs> it's like, oh, I better watch, find out why this person's quitting. Yeah, it's a um, clickbait. <laughs> but, you know, she also talks about how, like, she reached this boiling point where she can no longer be complicit. Should, in, should we preface a little bit uh, who she is and what the special is or... Sure. I mean, Hannah Gatsby, I didn't know anything about her, actually, but she's a, you know, um, uh, a comedian and she talks a lot about she's she, uh, you know, she's a lesbian comedian, grew up in Tasmania, which was very socially conservative. Uh, her comedy is a lot about uh, gender and queerness, and, but also ultimately comedy itself. And that's what I liked about the comedy special. It's uh, more than anything else is that she sort of prefaces that like, you know, co- comedy is complicit in uh, causing harm because it's all about creating tension and then releasing the tension. So making people feel uncomfortable and then just getting them back to zero. But it never goes above zero. And the reason I found this, I, I, we didn't get to talk about this before the podcast, but I'm going to share it with you now. The reason I found this really insightful and beautiful is because in my own career, the critique has always been, and this has been a self-imposed critique, but I also received it when I as early as my earliest memories of receiving critique in school were Jeremy, it's very funny what you're doing. You're self deprecating, um, you know, but it seems like the more you win, uh, the more everyone else loses. Like, you know, you're, you're pointing the finger at a lot of people, but you're refusing really to make any positive change. And, and I know art doesn't require, you know, itself to make positive change. But if it, if all you're doing is laughing at everyone else, but if you've, if you've made something that didn't exist, you've already changed something. Sure. You, and I think you're going to make a great argument for like 99% of people, including myself who continue to make work at times, which is, you know, about dismantling and making the invisible visible. And I've talked about that on the podcast before. Like it doesn't, it's main job is just to like highlight, um, the main job of artists to exist. Ask questions. Yeah, it's to exist. Not to, yeah, but, not, not to facilitate. But I asked myself, just as Anna asked herself, and just as I'm sure many of our listeners asked themselves, who am I in relationship to this thing that I do and the world that I believe in and the one I want, the reason I set out to do this in the first place was to make the world a better place. And I'm just going to say that. like I, That is why I chose to make art. And have I done that? And, and is it actually any better? And, and the answer to that question for me two years ago was like, no. In fact, it, you know, it, it's not. That's Maybe the tragedy of political art. 
yeah, but like I didn't think that it was had to be political or apolitical. Like, but I was I was struggling with that, and but I think may, a lot of people. But maybe what I, I what you were struggling with is that art is a very ineffective tool. It, yeah, it's a I very mean, ineffective tool to change the world. But that's not true. Historically, there have been artists that have changed the world, and so I had to I had to reconcile that. Um, but but when you when you think of a negative example that the futurists kind of inspired fascism in in Italy, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that proves that it is possible to change the world, and it didn't change it for the better. But uh, I'm I mean, sure there's tons of examples of. of uh, art inspiring dictators to do stuff well you know it's funny right now because design is also going through a crisis um and the answer to their crisis is speculative design which is like design was going through this crisis of all design is for the client surely there's more than just the client and the and the utility we create for them oh yeah artists have been doing this thing where they have like a greater sense of self and purpose and they don't do it for a client they do it for themselves or they do it for the planet and we're going to call that speculative design right And and so like <laughs> they are reconciling their own thing. Like we're too useful. But, but <laughs> like, do, do these people know that that song "Heal the World" by Michael Jackson? Uh, I would have is, to go is, out and ask them all individually. Is, but but <laughs> is is that the goal? That's what I often wonder. Like to me, that's just the horror scenario where we go towards a future where, uh, yeah, the whole sure. art world is like, okay, does anyone feel uncomfortable with this work? Okay, let's adjust it so no one's uncomfortable. Uh, is this work helping? Is it inspiring people to donate money to good causes? What was the result? And then you get into this weird, weird warped alternate universe where you have to yeah, make heal the world art. Look, I I love gardening, right? But I'm not going to go out and believe that gardening can change the world. That said, some people do, and like guerrilla gardening would be one example. And they bring like vegetables to the ghetto, right? Like, but the way I treat gardening is like I, you know, prune my plants, and you know, like there's there's room for all of these points of view. That's not the argument I was trying to make. I was, you know, trying to say that like. Uh, I was talking about change. So there's personal change or social change. These things often happen all at once, though. And, and like at least from a aggregate point of view, we really don't. But I think that the thing that might be different in our time is that you are feeling as if change is happening in this direction, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and the Trump voters are feeling like change is happening in their direction at the same time, and they're experiencing the same jolt of positive energy and like, oh, the world is getting better. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe it was just getting. I mean, it's getting a lot worse, probably. No, no, but, but it, it like it, it, and I feel like it's almost a, a, a big uh, rural versus city dichotomy because mm-hmm. uh, Amsterdam just has elected the first uh, female mayor, and she's from the Left Green Party, mm-hmm. and that whole uh, Geert Wilders phenomenon is in the smaller towns. So, and it's the same in Germany, and it's the same in France, like the. The, the, the populist parties there are very popular in the areas that are thinning out and that are suffering economically. And the cities, everyone celebrates uh, immigration because everybody loves uh, food from different countries. I think that's mm-hmm. a big part of it that makes you understand uh, different cultures. It's like, oh, these people are great. I love, uh, I love pho and I love sushi and I love tacos. And... Um, So everybody in cities agrees that immigrants are great to make a city vibrant and uh, it's it's great to have different points of view and people enjoy having neighbors from all around the world. It's very interesting. So that that's maybe the this dichotomy of these two realities. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't want to go all the way to the the political extremes to start because I think that, like, if we go back to the individual and we were talking about, like, this sort of the Pixar solipsistic point of view, which is, like, you feel it inside of you. There are lots of personal expressions and, like, little individual acts that we perform every day. Like, we choose to go to bed earlier or we, like, make a change to work out more. Um or even like to stop using Facebook and like there are just these there's this emotional variable that's like kind of churning and I kind of wanted to just talk about that I think it's like something that I'm thinking about that yeah, yeah but but so my my thesis is that you're experiencing change in one direction and, and someone else is experiencing change in I'm another in a, direction I, I have a yeah I'm in a bubble right so the inputs like that I receive and, and are that's than the inputs that's because there's no longer one newspaper for everybody it's everybody has their own newspaper. So let's talk about some of the things that break through those bubbles. Like, because one of our um, one of our podcast listeners suggested a topic, which we haven't. I don't know if we could cover. We could probably do a whole episode on it, but I think it's kind of interesting. Which is um, memes, and memes for our listeners. I mean, everyone knows what a meme is, right? But it's actually origin of the word is like cultural gene. It's called a, like a media. Was gene. Richard Dawkins um, who introduced that word? I think so. Yeah. And the idea being that, like, you introduce something into the world and then others, you know, replicate it and make a small alteration to it. And it grows and morphs. And eventually, though, it becomes kind of commonly understood as a as a way of express, like a kind of a piece of expression beyond what you like individually express. The smiley face was invented by a single person. Right. That that logo sort of pictogram. And then it just became so common and used in so many ways that there was no way of claiming that it's anybody's right and what I, but what i think is really interesting about thinking about this topic through the lens of a meme is like so like you know anyone could have an in, like uh can make a, a small gesture that they feel like in their heart is right put it out into the world and then others will pick up on it and replicate it and change it and morph it and i do think just to come back to like your point is i think that's what you're usually arguing for i don't know why i'm doing this reversal but you're usually arguing that like if the artist just listens to themselves and does their thing they can still make huge change right like they can still whether or not that's their intent well what i mean is that the artist is more effective if the artist is not concerned with the outcome of where they're heading mm-hmm. if they just um if you compare yeah. it to deep sea diving, and if you have a plotted route, you're not going to discover so many species. But if you're like, oh, let's go there, nobody's like. If you, I don't even know if that's scientifically true. If you discover more species, if you don't have a plan, but you understand <laughs> the metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. My, I mean, my point though is simply that um, you know, w- regardless of when you choose to change, you can do it for yourself. And I think that it's fine and no one really cares. It's a universe of no one who cares. <laughs> um, but every once in a while, we, you know, as a society, pick up on all these little changes and that does result in massive change. Um, and it's usually driven by the first person to think a little bit differently, though. Um, there is this, this, um, uh, this optimism that in Silicon Valley and in... Uh, one of the things I find interesting is that the, there's technological progress that's measurable. So you could say a, a computer now is faster than 10 years ago. That mm-hmm. we can agree on. And if you think faster is better, then that's a positive change. But this idea that, oh, the web is going to bring everyone together or blockchain is going to stop the big banks from having so much power, that mm-hmm. I think the web has proven that it doesn't always go in the direction you think it will. 
So right. you, you could say, oh, the, yeah, the, the, with, the, with the web, of fa- like the Facebook bullshit where they're like, oh, we're all about bringing people together. And I don't think it worked out that way. Right, right, right. So the, 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 to anticipate what change will do, it's, it, you simply don't have any idea what it will do. Yeah, I mean, to come back to that um, like jumping could, the could shark. You, could you have predicted that social networks would create alternate realities for groups of people that would create very divisive politics? Did you predict that in, in, when Friendster came around? No, I, th- I think that's my point, is like you can't predict any of this stuff no. because it's the, sim- the system is so complex. I mean, maybe artificial intelligence Did you, will figure it out. I was reading this, this book, uh, Three-Body Problem, and uh, I didn't like it that much. And I also, the same with Foundation series, that it's this sort of sci-fi where they predict the future 300 years ahead and then mm-hmm. follow the future and it all works out exactly as they planned. It, it's like military yeah. strategy over the course of uh, millennia. Okay. And it, it just seems so far from, uh, like, anytime we think it's headed that way, and it, yeah, it's world is very unpredictable. Yeah, That's maybe a very well, obvious statement, but... Um, well, I'm doing something else at work, which is kind of interesting, which I'm trying to, I'm actually trying to reorient everything around this um, shared sense of purpose, as I mentioned earlier, like, before this, you know, sort of mini feeling I had that more people were leaving, but what it requires me to do is a really funny, and like, I did all this research, I talked to other agencies, people and everything. And like, because I all I wanted to do is redo the logo. Let me start there. It's like, our logo's old. <laughs> I was like, I was like, this logo is just like embarrassing at this point. And I was like, well, to redo the logo, I have to like go back and look at the positioning statement. To go back and look at the positioning statement, I have to go back and look at the vision. To do that, I have to go back and look at the vision. Why are these things the way they are? Oh my God, who are we? What is our purpose? And then, you know, we were doing the episode on purpose last week. But what is required for you to write like a purpose statement that informs sort of like everything in terms of how a company expresses itself, as I was talking about Apple earlier, the best practice, and it, for good reason, is that you go and you talk to every single individual in a company to understand but, what motivates them. But you're, you're saying this as if this method is, uh, this, it can be used for any organization. No, it can't. But what I'm saying is like the advice that I got and, every, and the research that I did and that I read is that like you go out and you go one to one. You're like you go but and the, talk the to Apple every individual. But the Apple example is the exact opposite. Steve Jobs comes in and he says, this is the law of the land. Anyone who doesn't like it, get no, out. I disagree. I disagree. What Steve Jobs is famous for actually is like t- taking long walks with people and talking to them about how they felt. You know, like hmm. he, he so really he, he was a good listener. He was a really good listener. Like he, he was tapping in to what people were feeling, and he often led by feeling with instinct. And ha- people hate this type of leader. They also love this type of leader, right? They hate this type of leader. <laughs> they love they it change- if it works. Yeah, yeah they, they hate it because they change their mind on a dime and they get very angry when things aren't quite right. And you're like, well, I, you said uh, logic, but uh, uh, right? Like, and I've worked with these people, including the CEO I work with today. And but then when they get it, they're really what they're doing is they're reacting to this like complex instrument, this emotional instrument of like they're listening to the emotional vibe of the room and they're like, it's falling flat. You know, I know this when I perform because I'll know if an audience is there or if they're not. Right. Did they show up and they energized? Like, are they picking up what I'm laying down or are they not? And when it's not, you know that it's you know, it's not working. And you certainly know at the end because people wander out of the room. <laughs> you know, they don't like come up to talk to you. They don't, they're not energized. You know, you can feel it. And so I, I, 
I think that um, it, it's interesting because what I'm about to do is like go and like interview or try and get, you know, 300 people to share with me like what is inside of them and what drives them, what's their purpose. And I can't do the bigger purpose thing until I do that. But I think we all do this all the time, whether we like it or not. Like you go to the movies, you gossip, right? What are you doing? You're trying to understand, like whether you're not doing it explicitly, you're gossiping about things, but you're trying to get a sense of how people feel about what their do, lives. What do you mean what after the movies that you talk <clears throat> about the movies? I'm just saying, like, you, you go out with a friend. What, what do you talk about? Oh, yeah. I've, Other I've, people. Uh, it's funny. Like, I've tried with, when artists get together, it's always like, this is not fair. That's not fair. Why are they with it's It's sort of a, a therapeutic venting because you're by yourself a lot. And then you can, you find a comrade yeah. and you can discuss your frustrations and I always thought, isn't it better if we get together and brainstorm and maybe come up with ideas than talk about uh, why is that project more successful than this one? Um, mm. But that gossip is just a, a part of uh, processing all your emotions. You really need it. Exactly. and that's how, but, like, but you can get caught up in it. I think you, you should really <clears throat> actively... Uh, you should be aware of how, how, how deep you go into that because there is a point where if you just go in circles you really just uh, yeah you, what what happens is that it sounds cheesy but this negative energy just really will get to you and it will if you keep saying the world's unfair the world's against me then at some point you really start believing that and i don't want to be i'm not implying that you should stand in front of the mirror and say i'm a winner i'm going to win today no i think you probably should but <laughs> but there's something about if you get together let's say you get together any any line of work and you say, oh, our competitor is doing much better and I'm, and I'm frustrated. You can mm -hmm. say that, but then you should stop there and then be like, what are you working on? Oh, that's more interesting yeah. than that. Oh, why don't you try this? And like, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? I and and it's, it's, it's a small click in your head, but it's, uh, uh, it, 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 yeah. Well, when people are excited, they also talk about it's, positive things. I, what I'm trying to indicate is that like the way people communicate is through talking about other people. And that's the way they transmit this energy. It's their, it's the way memes work ultimately. Like, but in the in the physical world, is through these conversations. But is and, isn't there some saying? I don't know if I remember it correctly. It was something like, "Small minds talk about other people, and large minds talk mm -hmm. about ideas." Something like that. Yeah, the people think talking about ideas. They're the ones listening to what small people are complaining about. Like, you can't, you can't. Like, that's that's the point I'm trying to make. That's my. Uh, my good point today is really just that I, I believe that change happens all at once. and But there are lots of hundreds of millions of little signals that add up, little memes and things that eventually just push things across a line. There is um, there's that uh, Malcolm Gladwell book on this topic, but um, it, the tipping point, you know, and there is this point at which, you know, he talks about where things just flip. And I really just think that um, I'm sort of I'm just seeing it in a bunch of places now, and I find it interesting. I feel like we're at, you know, there's a when companies try and force that point, like the iPad versus the laptop, it just doesn't work, right? We're all it, it rings hollow. I know they sell more iPads than laptops or whatever, but we should also like mention that there is a new MacBook Pro that came out this week. <laughs> it's faster because <laughs> because the tech dead pod, yeah, tech podcast, yeah. and they made the 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 keyboard not break. Hopefully, um, yeah. 
Um, but uh, yeah, like it's interesting. Like when you try, when you see different artists come along and try and position, like, no, this is the new thing. Or when tech companies come along, they're like, no, now it's like this, and it's not. And and people just keep marching along. Uh, but I I kind of feel like. I don't know. Recently, I felt like on the on the verge of a bunch of tipping points, and so that's why you know I wanted to talk about how I yeah. was feeling. It was yeah, more yeah, like yeah. I'm feeling this, and, and two years ago I felt it too. Um, and I and I wonder if you ever feel that way. Well, I, I can say that uh, for me, art history was always quite intimidating because uh, mm-hmm. um, there's so much invention and change has happened, uh, and especially there was an age of modernism where they really even wrote down like. We're going to change things, and here's a list. Like this is exactly <laughs> right, right. what we're going to manifesto. change. Manifesto, yeah, yeah. Manifesto. Okay. So, and 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 it was concise. So it was like, this is old crap. We're bringing the new shit. Uh, yeah. I think it's very hard today. That's maybe the biggest change. And it, to me, our times are much more interesting, and these these subtleties and these uh, small changes. But so they're not like okay, figuration is dead. We're going to abstraction, and now everything coexists at the same time, and the details mm-hmm. are changing. Um, but I think it's very difficult for an artist to to stand up and say, "This is what I'm bringing to the table," and to say that in words. Like mm-hmm. I think that's very. If if anything changed over the years, is that you don't do that. Mm-hmm. Like no one does that anymore. No, I don't think anyone is like. Well, painting was dead, and I uh, gave it a kick in the ass, and I'm the new... Uh, it, is that is that because the system's too complex or too big? Or too well, wide, I, if or? anything changed, the number of artists is, is, is exponentially growing. That is, is yeah. such a change. Like, yeah, it used to be you could get everyone into one room, and you could say, like, okay... Well, it used to be like, is. yes, hello, art world, and they would just be sitting in front of you. <laughs> and you knew them all by name, and you wrote birthday, right. birthday cards, and that was the art world. <laughs> you, sent, you did mail art yeah. exchanges all year long. <laughs> and now there's many different art worlds. There's, like, the, the street art world, and within the street art world, there's the more consumer-facing street art world, and there's the more uh, rebellious street art world, and then... There's the net art world, and there's the more hactivist biotech. And so many the glitch, diff- yeah. there's so many different scenes, yeah. and uh, yeah. and there's the the conceptual painters, and there's the formalist painters, and then there's the the psychological painters, and then there's the installation painters, and the, and they all coexist, mm-hmm. and they're all making steps, but nobody's like. Do you feel like there's examples of of characters that uh, in the Maybe in the last ten years, did you feel like, oh, they flipped the switch? Like there was a before and after that artist. Um, well, besides Marcel Duchamp. <laughs> no, no, in the, like in the like, last ten years. Oh, in the last ten years, right? Well, it's only only, only bring up Marcel Duchamp because it's quite funny because it's like people will be like conceptual art. It's like still a new thing. You're like it's actually over a hundred years old. But um, yeah, and then if you if you if you trace back the ideas of conceptual art and then look at religious rituals. Uh, I think religious rituals, a lot of them are like, get rid of the material and, and the, the truth is inside of you if you just meditate enough. That sounds a lot like conceptual art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the Zen garden, like putting a few stones in a garden and raking the stones, that sounds a lot like conceptual art. So I, yeah, I, I, I don't I, even I, think yeah. conceptual art was such a change. It was just a more spiritual approach. But you're asking a really good question, which is anything arrived in the last 10 years that was just simply on arrival so drastically different but so correct and there was a before and after the, yeah it was like it, it was just like a line in the sand was drawn on that on that day and and i think that i would have a hard time answering and that I, but question. i but i do think if you look back 
three decades, it was, everything was very different. So I, I like the fact that the art world is more like a, a huge organism instead of a few flags. Mm-hmm. But when I, you know, when I give artist talks, I do actually plant a bunch of flags and it helps people understand like, oh, at this point, this did become kind of like truer, <laughs> you know, like, and it, it does help to look at the milestones along the way because yeah. you can see that there is a high contrast, right? And in the way people are thinking about things. Yeah, I was talking to a friend and there's always this uh, dichotomy of uh, thinking and making. And so mm-hmm. it, there's people who... I would say saying and doing, yeah. Yeah, saying and doing. Uh, it, it, like, um, the, the mind-body should be together. It should be a wholesome, holistic experience. But people tend to... Some people are more on the research side. and some, uh, uh, Like, mm-hmm. some people are more on the, on the linguistic, theoretical, whatever you want to call it side. And some people are more expanding on the material and intuition side. Mm-hmm. And then there's always a discussion. Like uh, I think a lot of painters do really well financially, but they're not so much ex- uh, with curators. And then there's a lot of artists who work well with curators, but they don't make as much money. Mm-hmm. So both sides feel like that's not fair. Why aren't yeah. we in the biennials? Why aren't we in the auction? Blah, blah, blah. And then my friend was saying the most interesting art is the intersection of the two when the mm-hmm. thinking and the doing come together and this whole one is better than the other is very uninteresting. Yeah, you're right. I think you're right. And I, th- I, mean, I think that's maybe why, that's uh, the, 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 the art world has been working on that for 300 years of like finding all these extremes, but actually finding that the intersections are interesting. And taking your head out of the art world and putting it sort of, you know, let's, let's go back to the tech world for a second, which well, we that, sometimes do. That, like, if there's any change in me that I can, I, I, sorry to interrupt. I mean, no, it's okay. I'm incredibly sorry. I'm sorry. But <laughs> I was sitting down at dinner with Jake Levine, uh, who had electric objects that start up. Yeah, yeah, You remember? Yeah. And like bringing affordable art. Yeah, we trashed screens. it on the show. <laughs> we, tra- we trashed a startup on the show. Did I? Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, Jake. Sorry, Jake. <laughs> well, uh, uh, lesson learned. Uh, the, the, the startup didn't end up, uh, it, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was a really good experiment. I, I, I encourage experimentation, so... Bravo. But, uh, and, and I was there with Kevin McCoy, who started a blockchain's uh, authentication for art. And mm-hmm. Jake Levine came, didn't come from art world, but came from internet culture, Tumblr. And internet culture, always, if there's excitement, it's good. If there's lots of people, it's good. So he said, bringing art to more people, that was the core mission when we talk about philosophy. So mm-hmm. if you want to bring art to a lot of people, you should bring the price down. You should make it accessible. You should make it easy to use, all these things. And then going to Iceland, you're like, maybe it's really, that's the wrong mission for art to to go to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's contradictory to the whole being of art, of being very protected and solipsistic. And and so that's been Mm -hmm. a change in me where uh, I always thought because of the internet and internet culture, it's like, okay, more likes, more better. And it's like, maybe more likes is not more better. Mm-hmm. Maybe like an individual one-to-one experience, like whether it's with someone that made a million dollars or with someone that's below the poverty line. I don't know. Would be or, more or, valuable. Yeah, or maybe just not worrying about any outcome is the most uh, effective. Mm-hmm. But you're bringing up a good point in terms of how we measure whether we are on the right yeah, track or not. Yeah, and that's whether been a change is, for me. But. Yeah, whether it is time to change or not. Like, should we change because we're not getting the fame that we were looking for or... Should we change because we feel that there's a there's a, a a way to live that would make us feel more complete and happier? Like the stuff I've been reading recently is about finding 
and bringing your whole self to whatever you do and feeling complete as an individual. And this was more about the change that, you know, I was experiencing two years ago, which was that I didn't feel like my whole self was at work. I didn't feel like my whole self was in my artwork and I wanted to be, you know, more of me, uh, which is very selfish, but it helped me sleep better. I wasn't sleeping. I I, I mean, I should say that. Like I was like anxious, a lot more anxious, I worried a lot more about what yeah, other people thought about It's funny sometimes me. that you can suppress things rationally, but then your body will just uh, go yeah. and protest. Like, no, Jeremy, you got to change something. Yeah, so being my whole self, and I know it sounds kind of cheesy, became my imperative, and it still is because I'm not there yet. But I feel a lot happier. I was, I was joking with someone today. They're like, aren't you stressed? You're taking on all this extra stuff at work. And it's like, and you have all these all this artwork stuff. How are you even doing all that? And I was like, well, because all of the things that I'm doing are things that I'm choosing to do for myself, not for someone else. And uh, and the and even if it's helping other people, that would be a choice that I'm making for myself. And I, so I don't know. I, I want I did want to share that because I think it's like it's, yeah, it's a very important. hard decision yeah, to make. Yeah. And I couldn't make it confidently until I was almost 40 years old. Like, I think, like, I feel so sad that most of my life I've spent trying to please other people. <laughs> and um, I just watched this comedian, Jim Jeffries, after you, you, you gave the example of, what's her name? The comedian? The, the Gatsby woman? Yeah. Hannah Gatsby? And then mm-hmm. I was watching it with Christina, and just as a counterpoint, I, Let's watch Jim Jeffries. He's also from Australia, and he makes very misogynist comedy, so that's more up my alley. And then he, he has this joke about a Canadian raping someone. He's like, I'm terribly sorry. I'll get it over with quickly. <laughs> that's the Canadian way of raping someone. Oh, no. That's horrible. Um, but, yeah, he, the Canadian ma- mantra, definitely the one I grew up with, was um, to serve other people before you serve yourself. Um, but I don't think you can, it's like the oxygen mask in a plane. You can't really help someone else until you've helped yourself. So I know that that's yeah, a, a popular it is thing funny that all, all these taglines help you clarify things. So yeah. it, the oxygen mask is a perfect example that can be interpreted in many ways. So uh, as an artist, you're like, <laughs> oh yeah, that sounds good. I want to spoil myself first. And then you're justifying like, oh, I I need to rent a yacht for a week. Like, I'll be able to help the world better. And you go down this path and you become Patrick Bateman of American Psycho and you're like convinced that (laughs) that's going to help people. So these these taglines really alter your reality. I know. I I wasn't really listening to any of these taglines. And it is funny because in that time, like self-care, which was really about, you know, people from marginalized spaces, specifically, you know, black Americans feeling like, taking care of their community and themselves was the first order of business, right? Uh, and then now it's like a meme, right, as we talked about earlier, that's used to justify buying a $100 face cream. But um, what, treat at yourself? the same time, no, the self, hashtag self-care, right? Oh, okay, uh, okay. Yeah, self-care does... But there's is, that, also that, like, that hashtag treat yourself and you see it in ice cream shops and stuff. And then it, it, there's uh-huh. an ice cream shop here in, in my street that... Has a huge Instagram wall with a big neon "treat yourself," and then people stand in front of that with uh, their ice creams are ridiculously large with a, a crazy amount of toppings. And yeah, I probably feel like also in these political times, like dark political times, people that kind of things just like wildfire, right? Like, oh yeah, like you're feeling miserable, have ice cream, right? Like, of course, <laughs> yeah. makes a lot of sense. Ice cream business is loving it. Yeah, <laughs> enjoy your ice cream before the nuclear attack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, I, I just wanted to talk about it because I wanted to be a little bit, I, I, I know we, yeah, be vulnerable on the podcast. I think that's one of the reasons we started this podcast is also to talk about well, the, maybe, some of the things maybe we haven't figured out yet. Something I want to say is that uh, these verbal concepts, because concepts existed before language. I think yeah. it, it, there's a part of the brain where all the senses come together. That's my theory. And that words are... A, a, just like maybe a 10% of everything you can feel and digest. So a concept is much deeper than language. And there's times where you want to clarify your thoughts. So your thoughts are like, your thoughts are a bit like a swamp with there's some streams and it's unclear and you're trying to get some order in there. It makes you feel good. So you start writing down your thoughts and then you're like, okay, here's my mission statement as an artist. I want to make people happy and I want to research and I like to activate people and inspire them. I start writing down these things. And just as an example for me, I started writing down like my brain generates moving images. That's just my talent. So I'm better at making moving images than stills. And moving images can't be objects because moving images are a projection, a sequence of images. And so that doesn't exist in any physical form. So I should never make objects. And so I clarified it all. Nice. A little blog post and it's clarified. Okay, that's that's who I am. I wrote it down in a blog post. And then How long ago was that? I don't know, maybe it was like 10, maybe eight years ago. Ten years ago. Ten okay, years ago. Yeah. And then that sort of gives you a framework and also puts a fence around and then you have you feel happy in your little walled garden. And then all of a sudden you realize that that's not true at all. But you made this mental construct that can be very... And it's the same with those uh, manifestos. So there's an example of uh, Theo van Duisburg, one of the founding members of the style. The, the style. Yeah. And of course the style was all about... They wrote down exactly why it had to be that way. Um, and that led to a lot of uh, horribly feeling architecture, but that's another thing. Um, all of these are like men mental constructs of bringing order and they end up not being true. So he was also creating Dada collages under another name because he would contradict himself. So he, right. he had brought, he's like, okay, I know we, we're bringing the universal truth and, and this sort of geometric beauty will make the world a better place. And then he's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm feeling all these other things and I'm going to contradict myself. So I have to come up with another name and do it secretly. But that's okay. Like, I mean, I think no, that's but the what, point. What, is like, but okay. what I mean, it's okay that he, he ventured into... But the danger is when you start writing down things, and I don't know if there's oh, any right. other and way, but, but this idea of, of Corbusier, uh, he wanted to demolish Paris and uh, just build high-rises and separate yeah. work and entertainment and living into three different cities with, with highways of, in between. I, yeah. And that to me... Ideology run amok. Yeah, yeah. And, and that to me is the perfect example of... Uh, not testing the hypothesis until it's completely finished. So it, <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's very dangerous to... Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's interesting you say that because that's why in like, in startup culture, you know, the, the, so the trend is towards holacracies or self-managed systems, like, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but like, you know, individuals working with the information that they have at hand to make decisions on their own without consulting any kind of like master, you know, rule book. Um, and then maybe, but like the one thing that they don't, you know, and then iterating, right? Like being able to test and like validate and then like change direction very quickly. Yeah. But if you, and, and so that, you, that's, you always test back to the core mission, right? 
Yeah, but the one thing that, yeah, so the mission and the vision sort of is are still true. But actually, the some of the th- people are, talk- are, are talking about removing, not removing that, but de-emphasizing that. And what I'm trying to talk about on this podcast and through a ser- series of episodes is like, the why behind those is probably more important. So like yeah. the purpose that underlies that mission and vision, like well, Facebook again, is like, the best example of a mission that sounds good in theory. Yeah. We should connect people. Yeah. And it's actually creating division. So, uh, yeah, but like, yeah. Why connect people though? Would yeah, be more exactly. And, and so thing. this, the, you know, that commercial they once did like Facebook is a chair. You can sit on a chair <laughs> 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 and it, it's the same with, um, I don't know, there's many mission statements that can go wrong that sound good. It, it, there's an example of um, Christianity thinking life is sacred, right? So you can't yeah. do abortion, you can't do euthanasia, life is sacred. Okay, that's a, you can, okay. And then there's stem, <laughs> stem cell research that could cure human, other human beings. And then that prime directive, life is sacred, stands in the way, but it's a 2,000-year-old rule. Maybe it's yeah. time to reevaluate that rule, but it's like no, that's the core mission. Life is sacred, and it seems like a really beautiful, loving uh, concept. Life is sacred, but then all of a sudden, that life is sacred thing is actually harming people. Yeah. So if we took the Facebook one, right, which is like you know connecting, uh, what is it, connecting the world? Yeah. It's a, yeah, and we're like, well, why? You know, the the at least one layer down, you get to. Um, maybe the I don't know what the it's answer so is. It's so funny but because would, you can, I, I you can always ask why, and it, 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 you can break down, and it's like what a three-year-old does. Why? Why? And if you just keep asking why, there's no answer. Well, no, eventually you do get to an answer usually, which is because you know you you believe that people should have a choice or something like that to like but why? to live life happily. But why should they be happy? And like, why? <laughs> why? That's like then you get to philosophy and you start boiling yeah. you start stripping everything away and you just get into this super abstract realm of what is consciousness and well the bottom line is like you hopefully you get past like to make a paycheck for or but maybe you get back there maybe it's because i need to survive to to propagate the human race i don't know uh it it could it i'm just saying that that exercise is is worthwhile yeah, for yourself i, and, I, th- uh, I think what uh, i really uh, love about art is that there is no question why. And the only, the only question is because I feel like it. That's an answer, though. There you go. Yeah, but, like, but, there's, I but I, what I'm saying is there's an answer, but there's no, to me at least, there's no verbal uh, But we do this every statement. week on the podcast. I think you, you like, you, like if I was going to write your purpose statement, Raphael, like, and, and why, when, if you're changing, if you're too far down the road, you're jumping the shark with qualities decreasing, I would be like, Raphael, you're not doing what you feel like. And you're like a free bird. <laughs> and this free bird is caged and we got to release you, right? Wait, I'm, like, I'm not following I, exactly. So what I'm saying is like, you know, if you, uh, if you were to ask why on yourself, I think you do get back to for you. It's like this untethered freedom. The artist is like. But the, not really, um, because I'm also following a trajectory of what happened before and what's happening around me. So I, I also understand I'm not free. So what I'm trying to say is I, I'm not trying to verbalize it. Mm-hmm. You're just like, you're just using your intuition. I'm, I'm just doing what comes along. And then uh, uh, the, the moment, yeah, I think what I'm trying to say, concepts are much larger than language. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And I mean, that's why sometimes people actually use language to figure out what they're thinking, right? They write it out. Yeah. Um, 
That's why we have this podcast, though. <laughs> anyway, I mean, we are at a, we are at a point where again we've forgotten to read the advertisement. Oops. Yeah, we have but a good one ad of this our week. listeners. Uh, yeah, one of our listeners, All uh, ads a friend good, of mine, sent in an ad. Uh, my friend John Hampton and um, excellent curator. But I wanted to let. Well, we should just read his his ad. Okay, so um, here we go. Hey, Raphael, do you wished? Hmm. <laughs> let, me, let me copy correct this for you. Uh, hey, Raphael, do you wish you lived in a small town where you could make a real impact? Not really, but I would love to live in complete isolation so I could focus on my own work. Well, I heard of this place called the Art Gallery of South, Southwestern Manitoba, where both of our dreams could come true. They're looking for a digital programs coordinator to develop a new media training programs for rural and indigenous communities. Sounds a little political. Do they also respect the intrinsic value of art? <laughs> of course! And imagine how good it would feel to bring digital art into someone's life for the first time. That does sound better than living next to a Whole Foods. <laughs> so head to agsm.ca, click Get Involved, and look at employment opportunities to learn more. Great. So head to agsm.ca. Thanks, John. That was John Hampton. Put Hampton's. it in the show um, notes. Yeah, um, thanks for sending in your ads. We love getting ads. It can be, like, the thing is, there's, like, so many things to advertise. I never, I don't understand. Where are your ads? Come on. You can advertise. (laughs) (laughs) You can advertise your practice. You can advertise the the shoes you're trying to sell on Craigslist. I don't know what it is, like, but uh, but send them in. And send your field Um, recordings. Yeah, we didn't get any field recordings this week. Um, So this is an advertising. The situation is diet. We've been talking about listening all episode. Get out there and listen, uh, to, and, and then hit record. Uh, we'd love to hear your podcast, uh, your field recordings, though, so that we can get them on the podcast. Um, but Raphael, you chose a field recording this week, yeah, because um, you're always you're always listening. I'm always walking around my neighborhood. It, I, I I have this strange thing now that I really never felt uh, love for where I live, and I'm starting to feel that it. it's very strange it, it, because mm. I really came to New York thinking, well, I have to put up with the bullshit, but it's good for work. thought it's a yeah. terrible place to live. And now maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome. I don't know. But I really love my neighborhood in, mm-hmm. in Chinatown. And I walk through the park every day, this little park nearby, and uh, the whole Chinese community, they're all playing all kinds of board games, Go and, and whatever. I don't know the games. And they're singing and they're doing Tai Chi. But everybody's hanging out together. It doesn't matter the weather. If it's blasting sun, they have umbrellas for the sun. And if it's cold, they put on three jackets. But they're always outside. And this is the example where logic doesn't apply. So you would think New York is kind of miserable living conditions because it's so expensive and everybody lives in such small spaces. But because the spaces are so small, everybody's together all the time. Right. So it's the opposite of the suburbs. And this is a group of... um, elderly Chinese singing, they always have this little uh, amplifier speaker on their belt and then a little microphone on their face and they sing together and uh, that's what we're going to listen to. Awesome. Uh, on a side note, I got a boombox for my bicycle recently and uh, so now I listen to music publicly like everyone. Now you like annoy people with your hate. music choices. Yeah, and I was really horrified at first like, and now I'm like, I'm just loving it. Yeah, yeah like, the I'm urban like, DJ, yeah. <laughs> the urban DJ, <laughs> Anyway, you're doing like uh, power ambient on the bicycle. Yeah, so I'm channeling these vibes. I'm loving it. Okay, let's listen to the the field recording. Thanks everyone for listening. Bye bye. Take care.